you heard me correctly. Hot dogs. You've seen that TV preacher with his giant bucket of macaroni and cheese. Well, don't be fooled. The makers of long-running and world-famous webcomic Is This Tomorrow have an alternative to the big bucket of macaroni and cheese. What are you going to do when the big one hits? We know it's coming. You know it's coming. You'd better be prepared. I'm talking about Hot Dogs for Humanity. That's right, Hot Dogs for Humanity. Your post-apocalyptic food solution. We don't waste time with bulky paint buckets filled with macaroni and cheese. We provide you with large cardboard boxes filled with hot dogs. Your first question is, can a human being survive only on hot dogs in a post-apocalyptic landscape? Scientists agree. Human beings can survive only on hot dogs in a post-apocalyptic landscape littered with concrete rubble and burned-out cars. Each Hot Dogs for Humanity cardboard box filled with hot dogs comes with adjustable straps so that at the first sign of intruders, invaders, those wanting to take your hot dogs, you can sling it on your back and make a hasty escape. If you're lucky, you can meet up with the people who bought ketchup and the people who bought mustard and maybe even the people who bought hot dog buns. The geniuses at isthistomorrow.com, Woody Compton and Kelly Shane, are here to make you a special offer through me. They are not, as was rumored, in the hospital after eating too many hot dogs. The Hot Dogs for Humanity intro box is only $19.99. That's $19.99. And is available at isthistomorrow.com. Yes, that's isthistomorrow.com, a weekly webcomic. Supplies are limited. Order your Hot Dogs for Humanity cardboard box filled with hot dogs with adjustable straps at isthistomorrow.com. That's isthistomorrow.com. Ready, Rob? Yeah, yeah, I'm ready. You wanna, you wanna bring us in? Yeah, yeah. We're, let's do it. All right. Welcome everyone to another episode of That Record Got Me High. That is Barry Stock. That's Rob Elba. And we are here today. I'm back from my little trek uh, across the pond to back, England. Back to from London. England, yes, London. Uh, so that was fun. Successful trip. Yes, and we had the uh, negotiations with the with the uh, with the Queen. Yes, everything went well. Yeah, we're, we're still friends. We had a little <laughs> we had a little thing we were going through, but we're still friends. perfect. All right, and we have a guest today. We in do our, in the uh, that record got me high uh, studios. And who is our guest, Barry? MC Caustic, Michael Caustic, who is the uh, founded along with a gentleman named Phil Milstein. Am I correct? The Velvet Underground Appreciation Society, back when the Velvets were um, very much more an underground phenomenon, 
than they have uh, become today. Wait, he founded the Velvet Underground pre- and we're and by coincidence we're doing a Velvet Underground record. Look at what that. are the odds? Shocking. All worked out. Shocking. <laughs> so, so what are we doing? What's the record we're doing today? The Velvet Underground and Nico, the first album by the Velvets. The first album by the Velvets. The banana, the banana cover. The banana record. Uh, the pantheon of of, uh, of rock and roll, but. Right. I have a caveat though, because I know you were you were saying Barry. Well, uh, what more could be said about this? And one more, but still, in in like our world of people we know, this is a moment. But there's still plenty of people that never heard this goddamn record and don't give a shit about the Velvet Underground, right? Very true. This is very true, and it's also interesting. I'm glad to hear your perspective now, because you're about I'd say ten years younger than I am. Right. So that's going to be interesting, and for me to come back and really focus on this record big way this week. I'm also working on a book about the third album. To come back to the Velvets and hear them again and see how they hold up gave me a whole new perspective. And also, the fact I realized now oh, this is an impossible record. There's no way this should have been a great record at all. Right. No way. The story of this is a miracle. So You mean the way it was because of how it was put together and everything? Yes, the yeah, production yeah. and everything made right. for 3000 bucks. It, it, yeah. it, it sounds like a train. On paper, it sounds like a train wreck, Completely. Right? Completely. <laughs> and does. it had to be done just just right. So it's a, it's a miracle, and it's the outsider record of all time. Right. And it's I, I call it the Olymp- Mount Olympus because it's, it has this high lofty standing, but there's a lot to be said about it in there, different all different aspects. Absolutely. All right. Oh, and real quick, I should have said right before we jumped in, I should have said real quick, I want to give a Patreon shout outs. We have some new patrons on our Patreon. So just uh, we have some new friends with benefits. We have Lane Claffy and uh, Stephanie Poe McCook, our new friends with benefits. And we have a super friend that is Ricky Poyo has become a super friend. So those are our three newest uh, Patreons. So you can go to patreon.com forward slash TRGMH. And uh, become a patron, and then I'll give you a shout out. That's pretty exciting, right? Uh, all right. So we're, yeah, we're we're adjusting. We're putting our drinks on. Co- we're we're coastering up, so we won't make as much noise. I'll edit that time. out. So uh, I met I met Mike in the early 1980s because uh, uh, there's someone who comes up frequently on the podcast, Billy Taylor, from Orlando, Florida, went to a record show in Orlando. And called me from the payphone at the record store or the record show and said, "You got to come down here. There's this guy, MC Caustic, and he's uh, he's runs the Velvet Underground Appreciation Society. And so I I believe I did come down there, and then we got to be we used to go and stay with Mike and Stewart, drive down from Orlando for the weekend, cause mayhem and havoc in the sleepy seaside village of Stewart, Florida at the time, and." Uh, so, but Mike, uh, you saw the original Velvets two different times, right? It was crazy, yeah, just just totally lucky. So how did you become, when did you become a Velvet fan? Because I know me and Barry, obviously we came to it late because cause this record came out in 1967. It was recorded in 1966, it came out in 67, so obviously there's no yeah, way I we, probably we were did, little kids. Yeah, I didn't hear it until the late 70s. Right, probably. but when did you, when did you discover the, uh, the Velvets? When did you get it? This is funny to almost get into like the uh, Stone Age of communication, just because at the time, this is uh, 69 when I saw them, but thanks to Boston Radio, I lived in Western Massachusetts, just outside of Amherst, Mass. And luckily enough, the Boston radio station came in at night so I could hear Sgt. Pepper and Country Joe and the Fish and the 
other bands at the time. So I knew some things that were going on. And there was a record store in town, so I could go in. I got into uh, Freak Out, Absolutely Free, and some other interesting records of the time. And I used to look at this album with the banana on it. <laughs> and I knew Andy Warhol from Life Magazine and the right. soup cans and the happenings and everything. Right. But the record, if you look at it, there's a banana on the front. On the back, there's a party scene. Right. There's no song titles. There's nothing else. <laughs> right. So I thought, well, this is like Empire. The eight hours of the Empire State Building. It's just a. It's one of the EPI parties. People right. talking in the yeah. room. So right. that, I said, cool, that's nice. But yeah. I put it back and other stuff. So then they finally came to town, and I was lucky to find out about it because there's no newspaper or anything like that. And they were playing in a, <clears throat> and he had a little. This guy who used to work at the Boston Tea Party, which had all big the cool show. bands, big yeah. shows, started a country place just outside Amherst. There's a roller skating rink before they put some carpet down. So there's, as it turns out, Lou and everyone out in the, in the country field in a roller skating rink stage. Oh man. Standing up on stage saying, well, this song's called Heroin. <laughs> it's not for it. It's not against it. It's just about it. Yeah. And there's two, like, run cops, you know, sleepy run cops <laughs> looking up like, what, what, yeah. what that guy said? So how many yeah. people showed up for this thing? 200. I mean, okay. it was oh, really? small okay. sitting on the on the floor, on the carpeted floor. And, and this is 1969, March right. 69. So what did you what did you think? You saw this, this is the first time you heard them was this performance. It was just, it was astounding because I, you know, I saw Blood, Sweat, and Tears at that time when they were good with the... Yeah. Early, early band. Yeah, yeah. But this was like just another world. All not of like sudden, anything. Not like anything you ever saw. Sunglasses. Before, right? The black, dressed in black. Right. Oh, I should say we're all sitting. We're wearing um, a turtleneck uh, sweaters, and we're while wearing sunglasses here, sitting, and we're sitting straight up, <laughs> just for, to keep the mood. That's right. <laughs> so we we country people were just struck dumb, and this woman who stood there and pounded the drum, the bass drum on its side for Mo two Tucker. hours without yeah, yeah, missing a beat. No idea it was a woman. Right. <laughs> right. 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 No, right. Yeah, Absolutely. Would, yeah. It's like a teenage and boy. So, uh, did you go out after this? Did you go out and get the record that you immediately that you dismissed at first? Well, that I didn't know about. But what I did was I went and bought White Light of White Heat because oh, it had man. the song on it that they ended the show with called Sister Ray. Oh right, yeah, right. right. And I put it on. I said, Oh man, this is so slow. Oh yeah, yeah. Because was I was fast. really disappointed. Yeah. Right. Because we played it, it was like Johnny Ramone. Louis' hand was like Johnny Ramone blazing through that song. Oh, okay, right. Okay. Well, and because by that point, they'd been playing Sister Ray for a few years, too. So, you know. Well, it would always go up and down. Like yeah. the next time I got my friends two months later to take me out in the car, I said, man, you've got to hear this. They like Zeppelin and everything. This is the heavy <laughs> band. This will blow you away. Finally, we got there about 1230. Same place? Same place, same roller rink. And they just finished like, a long, slow, low Sister Ray, oh, like a yeah. country thing. Yeah. Said, oh yeah, great, thanks. That was that was special. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, but that was enough at that time to really get my interest. Then I got the Banana album, and there was always something in there that had a hook, yeah. something different from the Beatles, from oh, Beach yeah. Boys, from all the NRBQ, the other bands that was listening at the time. Right. Something they had that you well, couldn't get. Well, there's a clue is in that uh, that band that Lou had with the Pickwick, the Primitives. There's that primitive, there's a intentional primitive aspect to the Velvets that is, uh, um, especially in the tones, the guitar tones on the record are, are, are not, they're not sweet, they're not gentle, they're just, they're just rough hewn, and not rough hewn in a way where you're like, oh, it's like distorted, it's, in, it's a, it's a, it's, 
um, very pointed. Jonathan Richmond talks about he would see them. He was their super fan. He saw them a hundred times or more. The colors they made. Yeah. How were they making that sound? Because they had the cheap box yep. everything. Yep. How are they getting the tones right? Yeah. And that to me is a delicate balance of the record. That's impossible to recreate. They yeah. Talked about yeah. The special things they talked about tuning it down. From yeah, they tuned down to D. Like Lou, he even did that somewhat later in his career, where you tune your guitar down a whole step. And I confess that that's that's what I do. Oh, that's what you got it from. Yeah, yeah I got so, it from. so it sort of makes it ring out more, right? It's and a slower. Like, some of the sonority is a little more different. like an open. It has, is. It opens things up a little more. It, it does. So you tune down to D instead of E, and then you know Lou. Uh, well, that first record especially. It's um, well. They started it at. A, they started it uh, recording it by, on their own, or with Warhol's money, but without yeah, any well, sort of. So, so ostensibly, it's produced, and I'm doing air quotes, produced by Andy Warhol. But of course, Andy Warhol didn't know anything about producing music. But but um, in, in a way, he kind of he produced it in that he let them go in there and sort of do what they wanted to do. Without he told them keep in the dirty words. And he gave them artistic shield. Right. Now, the thing about the band, you have to look at the only band in the world like this. Think about this. You've got Lou Reed, Syracuse literature major. Right. Uh, songwriting, he made the doo-wop songs in the 50s. Right, right. And he was a maven for, for great James Brown rhythm guitar, all of that. So you've got Lou there with his sensibility, Delmore Schwartz. Right. Uh, last exit to Brooklyn. Right. Trying to bring, as he said, adult literature to rock and roll. You've got Lou. There you go. John Cale, who was on the BBC, I think, age nine, playing piano. Yeah. Uh, like yeah. A, a prodigy. So a like prodigy, a, classical oh, yeah, trained. Yeah, sure. yeah. Scholarship to Tanglewood when he was very young. Welsh, not English. Welsh, right. Welsh. Yes. Big difference. Right. So he had that, and then he worked with Lamont Young with drones. With, right. Uh, the uh, learning how to uh, get a whole different Eastern music influence. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that whole droning stuff is a huge part huge of this part of uh, record yes. and that sound. Yeah. Sterling Morrison. Sterling told me that they had the most scholarships of any band. They were well, <laughs> well educated. Yeah. Sterling went on to get his master's in medieval literature. Oh, come right. on. Okay, okay. And he wrote his thesis in Beowulf. I and mean, become a tugboat captain. And a, a tugboat captain also has his other job. So no band was like this. He was uh, when they were playing in Max's Kansas City. He was bicycling to school to finish up his, his, uh, his right, degree. Right, right, yeah. So, no band had this, and he had a beautiful uh, rhythmic sense on the guitar. He did. He would keep the melodies together yeah. while Lou would fly off with yep. the That's right. space, and then Mo, the drummer. Right. Primitive, the primitive drumming. Well, their first drummer, remember, Angus McLeish, right. the Buddhist, he left when they got their first gig. And he left because he said, they're going to tell us when we start <laughs> and then when we have to stop. He said, no, we play music. We don't, we're, we're not, not told what to totally do. Totally uncompromising. So he left for that reason. Right. So they brought in Maureen Tucker. Who was somebody's friend's sister. She was Sterling's, uh, right, she was Sterling's friend's sister, right. Yeah. And, and uh, she loved Bo yeah, Diddley. She so Bo Diddley, Olatunji, right. the Beatles, she had that basic... So they're minimalist right. drumming, and right. Lou Reed has a great quote. Uh, he once said about uh, Mo Tucker, he said, there are two kind of drummers, Mo Tucker and everybody else. <laughs> yes. You don't, you don't find them like, like her. No. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. there's no other band like that. Then running into Andy Warhol to actually take them under his wing. 
He gave them protection, a place to play. Right, and right. And write about courage. stuff that you got to realize it came out in 1967. It was unbelievable. There's a band yeah, singing no, about these yeah. the subjects. Well, 65, really, he, was, he wrote heroin when he, he was 18, 19 in Syracuse. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. 64, really, 65. And there's right. some early demos of them. They're living in, like, he and Sterling living in, and uh, K.O. living in a cold water flat. flat. Right. And they recorded these demos on a cassette that are like folk very much informed by the folk scene of the time. Yes. So, yeah, so that's the, that's what I was saying. Like, there's still plenty of people. This was an underground record, and there's the famous quote Brian Eno said that, oh, however many uh, records it sold at the beginning. Everyone. It didn't sell many records at all. It was considered a, a failure, a commercial failure, but everyone who bought one of these started a band. Right. Started a band, or it really was inspirational to yes. us. I talked to right. so many people doing the fanzine who went on to become artists or producers or right. other artistic and it, and it should be said, this is just as uncompromising a record as the day it came out. Oh yeah, now when you listen to it, and Robert uh, Christigal had a great, because he did he did a, a review of it like 10 years later, because at first it didn't hardly anyone even Nobody reviewed it. It was under the radar. But 10 years later he did a, re- a review for the Village Voice of it. And he said, uh, he said the record was uh, difficult to understand when it came out in 67. He said, which is probably why people are still learning from it. He says it sounds intermittently crude, thin, and pretentious at first, which I think is, is perfect, right? Uh, that's crude, true. thin, and pretentious at first, but it never stops getting better. Right. And, and that's you, like that's yeah. a great description of it, right? Because uh, that when I first, now, uh, when did you first hear this? I would have heard it probably in the late 70s and been just sort of, I, I, the truth be told, I heard White Light, White Heat first. Oh, you heard that? And I think I heard White Light, White Heat first because of the Quincy Public Library, Quincy, Illinois. Visit my dad in the summer. Checked out White Light, White Heat and said, I think I put it on. um, I remember my reaction being, my reaction was like, there's something wrong with this album. Yes, yes, that's what I did the first it's time I got. There, I heard the because and, it's and as, it's it's its own version of uncompromising, the rough, distorted, lo-fi, um, brutal. The yeah. first record has got more delicate touches, and White Light White Heat is kind of like you know okay. Yeah. Well, that's the the other component. Andy Warhol bringing in Nico. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. So those for five some glamour. That's right. Sure. <laughs> that's right. And that really helped get him the contract. The, the yeah, Tom yeah, Wilson yeah, was yeah. interested yes. in her. They, 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 they had this Chantou. She was gorgeous, this right. beautiful woman. She strange. Gave him a style. <laughs> yes. Very, so think of another band with five people like that. Nobody. Right. There's right, no right, one. Right, Come right, on. Nah. There's nobody like that. And uh, the uh, Tom Wilson. I, I didn't realize until you sent this list of uh, of his production credits. Uh, the Amazing list of things that he worked on, including Sun Ra, Cecil Taylor, uh, Free Will, and Bob Dylan. He did uh, uncredited, apparently, and uh, another side of Bob Dylan, um, Simon and Garfunkel, Sound of Silence singles. He was uh, got some cred for that for sure. Bringing it all back home, the, the Like a Rolling Stone single, uh, the famous take. What was it? Take. We talked about that. You said that like a Rolling Stone, it was it's take 18, 18 out, yeah. <laughs> out of 28 or something. They yes. did 10 more after that. Yes. Um, and uh, Mothers of Invention, Freak Out, another uncompromising, strange record, which um, the same time the Velvets has gone back and forth. And just so we're clear, Frank uh, Frank Zappa hated the Velvet Underground, Vice and I believe it was a mutual feeling. Yeah, mutual. Yeah, mutual. Yeah. They yeah. played uh, in the MC5. There was a story. Maureen Tucker's talked about the Velvets playing the Boston Tea Party, 
and the MC5 played there, and you know that there was a definitely a competition aspect to who was going to one up the other one there. Yeah, Maureen, of course, believed that the think, Velvets was the uh, took came out on top. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, well I'm sure, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I think that was. It's funny because when on uh, when you look at it, you would think they would both they both had mutual things uh, distaste for, and and that was like hippies. They were both kind of <laughs> anti hippie. But is I think, true. but I think it's just the fact that they, they were kind of uh, miserable, a little miserable, a little sour, like Lou and and, uh, yeah. and Frank Zappa. They were naturally they were just gonna, they were naturally uh, um, they were repel each other you know <laughs> they were both very acerbic personalities right right right. and those right. two you, you don't usually get two people like that they're gonna gonna <laughs> hang out and like and plus you know frank sees these new york people with black leather jackets and oh yeah they look pretend they seem so pretentious and and they are of course in a way they they were pretentious right but uh yeah so i heard i heard this record 1980 but they were pretentious but they but they actually lived up to the pretense. That's the thing, you know. These, I guess so, but but that's still that doesn't make them not pretentious. Okay, so. sure. <laughs> As I say, peering over my sunglasses that I'm wearing. <laughs> the this summer, or last summer, we saw the Bowie exhibit they had on. The, uh, what was it? Who was in that? What was the name of it? I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, the Bowie, Bowie the, Yeah, it was traveling around. Yeah. It was in a couple of different places. Very good. Yeah. And they had a, a copy of the acetate there. The, the, this is interesting. One of the first uh, reactions to the, the Velvet Underground on Nico album. And there's a quote from, from David. He said, Oh, yeah, I think I know what you're, yeah. I, I what you're talking about. I saw that quote. It was, it was yeah, great. They had it there at the exhibition. He said, uh, When the record was finished, I could not move, I was trembling. Fantastic, like nothing else. So, some people got it at, at that time. At the oh time. yeah, yeah. This was the acetate. Well, right. you would think, yeah, but you would think David Bowie would be one of those guys that would get it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Me, I'm like Barry. Like when I first got, it, I went out and bought this record specifically because it, it was like 1980, and Charlie Pickett would cover like Velvet Underground songs, and I didn't, I didn't, I thought they were his songs, and then they said, no, this is the Velvet Underground. <laughs> so I said, okay, I guess I better buy the Velvet Underground record. So I got this record, and I put it on, and I was confused by the first song, Sunday Morning. Sunday morning. It didn't yeah, sound like anything, does, you know. Yeah. And then by the second, by waiting for the man, I thought there was something wrong with the record. Yes. Or my thing, because I said, is this supposed to sound like this? And uh, so, but it's, yeah, of course, as time went on and everything, I would revisit it. And I remember one night it just came to me. I was listening to the record. I used to go to sleep at night when I was teen. I used to put headphones on and put records on. Yeah. And then just go to sleep like right. like with the record playing. Right. So you didn't have to hear your parents scream at each other. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, that was my house. Sorry. Right. Uh, yeah, but I think I I, do- I was dozing off when heroin was playing, when heroin was uh, on. About it, and I just sort of, it just sort of all made sense to me. Yeah. And it's like the, the brilliance of it all made sense to me. And uh, that's, that's the brilliance of this record is that. That as well, he was talking about, you know, I think we, we, we did do a Lou record, and um, we did New York. We did a two, our only double, two-part yes, it was uh, a, podcast. A dismal failure, but, you know, we it, tried it, to we did, that. Yeah, <laughs> Mighty good, mighty good. Oh, yeah. good. Mike liked it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, think we, I think we did our best. Um, was that he talked about characters in music that had never been... Like people that had never been right, right. No one would ever think about talking about, you know, teenage Mary and Uncle Dave. I'm assuming that there's rough analogs in his, you know, experience because he and John and Sterling they weren't they weren't teetotalers. They were talking. There was a quote in here today. I think it's maybe in, it's in your notes where 
Kale says, you know, we were we just finished snorting a bunch of crank and we went Lou wanted to go visit a college roommate and play guitar so they go to his suburb Long Island house at three in the morning, knock on his you know, God. And then the wife comes to the door and like, you know, who the fuck are you guys and what do you want? Oh, where's so-and-so? And they end up, you know, they were, uh, um, they were not um, unaccustomed unaccu- to the things they were writing about in the song. So. No, they, they were living it. They were living the real full on New York. Yeah. Lower East right. Side artist. Tough yeah. guy site. Poor. I mean, it's not Poor. like War- Warhol is not. So, no. Sporting them, you know. No, no. The factory they could practice that, but they, Sterling would tell me they, when they go to parties, they'd always take bags and take food home yep. you know, from all the parties ah. they get invited to, so <laughs> nice, like that. Nice. Selling blood, photos in the Police Gazette, Lou and John posing. <laughs> oh yeah, that's murder. right. That's right. That'd be tremendous to find those out. So things like that. But they were uncompromising. These three together, they had this yeah. vision they wanted to do. So I call it the Big Bang in New York, where you're coming through from the beats. You're coming through right. from uh, the minimalist. You're coming through from Warhol's uh, yeah. vision. Right. Yeah. This new pop, this new reality, uh, to try and make this new music. Yeah. And to me, they invented industrial music. Yeah, for sure. Music, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, urban, adult. Yeah. Uh, contemporary, really tough, real and life. And also, you know, I was thinking electronic music because some of the stuff in here it almost sounds like it, like it could be. Sequencers, it does or something, yeah, but it's sure. just them right. playing something like a monotonous thing or a droning thing over, and sure. it's almost like what they would use sequences yes. for now. But they were doing it uh, actually, you know, live in the studio. And that, I think, that was another thing: the willing to be, the willing to risk being extremely repetitive and not feeling like you had to change chords. No, they loved that. They yeah, thought that was great. Lou said there should be a crack in the record where you could, could probably repeat over and <laughs> it over. It would just repeat over. Right, right, right. 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 Yeah. The first record they released was on a flexi-disc for this magazine, Aspen. Yeah. came in a box, and it was Velvet Underground Loop. And it was, you've heard this, Barry, but yep. Kale must be with a, maybe a bass or... You're just playing that riff over and over. Over and over again. Goes into feedback. Over and over again for three, four minutes with a closed loop at the end. <laughs> at the end of right. closed yeah. groove. It doesn't go so anywhere. It goes on and on. That was their first release. So, yeah, that was electronic music at its yeah, primitive that, basics. Right. So, that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to invent a whole new thing and do it their way. So, they went into Sterling Sound. Did I get that wrong? What's the name of the. the uh, Scepter. 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 The old falling Apart Scepter Studios there. Right, and started recording on their own. Well, and that's the basis Andy's of the money. whole. With Andy's money. But, and those tracks do form the basis of the completed record. Right, most of those tracks. Yeah. Uh, that was the beginning. But when you hear them now, again, how rough it was. Very rough. Uh, yeah, sure. Songs. And you got to figure the guy. The guy at Scepter is probably like, yeah, okay, yeah, all right, whatever. Oh, could you imagine? Yeah, the, the, the well, studio guys saying, "Who what the fuck are who are these people well, and what is, are they was, doing?" Well, this is a guy named Norman Dolph who did some other production work, and he liked Warhol, so he took his pay in art. That was his thing. Ah, so, very clever. Since Andy was putting up the money, it was all okay for them to come in and do right. whatever they wanted go ahead and do the hell pretty you much want, you idiots you kids <laughs> yeah do what you want it still was at the point of tape cost $125 a reel yeah, yeah. so they did a, something that was an outtake boom recorded over it recorded over recorded it over. So yeah. there was no outtakes from this, no. this yeah album. yeah yeah it was at a low budget of production yeah they still kept all right. things down alright so let's let's start with the record and ironically the record starts the, the with the last song that they recorded for the record is the first song on the record well the two the two funny things to think about this again this is the the 
impossibility of how this record was. When they finished this and sent this out to record companies to be sold, sure. they put European Sun was the first Oh, no God. <laughs> that's what they here, Electra. Here, Columbia. Yeah, that's the one. Here, sign us yeah. Yeah. with that. That's I mean, definitely all the, the things. one that's, that's why they just. That's the song with the, with the crazy, noisy ending. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, a yeah, song yeah. where seven, Mo ends up playing out of time. They're not playing in time with yeah. each other at all. Which is a precursor. And it's basically, when I was listening, it's a precursor to all the noise music that's out there. Everything rap does and everything. That's it, right there. Yes. It comes back to that. So that was what they used to present themselves. Columbia sent back a note said, no human being would want to buy or listen to this. So that's what, they, that's what their attitude was. And then when the first album was going to be made, there was no uh, Sunday morning. Right. right. So, so again, this uh, is Tom Wilson Tom Wilson, helping right, right. To, yeah. to put this together. So yeah, Sunday morning was the last one. But and, again, then, and then Nico was uh, supposed to sing it, right? Yes. She was supposed to sing Sunday morning, but then when they go in, Lou decided, no, I'm going to sing it. Well, I went back and forth with that, but in the end, right. she got to sing the three songs. And again, that's part of the, the album's fragility but again, yeah. the great variety. You've got noisy, you've got quiet, you've right, got love right. songs, you've got crazy songs. It's, it's a, and I guess a world. There, there might be a popular conception maybe that Nico was some sort of, she was, a, you know, a sort of a, you know, not quite as uh, part of the scene as they were. But as I recall, Nico had her own, she was a, she was not, not a teetotaler or a, uh, uh, a refuse Nick either as far as the, uh, the New York lifestyle and the things that were going on. She came in. She was a whirlwind from Europe. She was. Uh, she'd been in uh, in La Dolce Vita. Right. Been in oh, the right, Fellini right, movie. Right. She was a top model in Germany. Yeah. yeah. She made a single with Jimmy Page. Right. She was uh, right, Brian right. Uh, right. Jones' girlfriend, <laughs> hanging out with Dylan. I yeah, mean, she so, was right. making a lot exactly. of contacts. And right. So the band was awestruck by her. She had fashion sense. She was really the the femme fatale. Right. Right. Yes. Right. And the, like and the record would not without her no. three songs that she sings on it, it wouldn't be the it same would be record. A very no, different no record. It would have a it would have not I I would just think that everything it's a perfect storm. Everything came together for this record to make it what it is. Yeah. And that yeah, without Nico on it, even though you might think, well, she's just singing no, it really I think makes poor it Nico good. would have liked to have sang maybe six songs on the record. <laughs> she would have liked to have sang a little more, but uh yeah, her Well that was like I think she and Lou and John and Sterling had a, there was a, they treated her a little bit like a, you know, a stepchild. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure, absolutely. Well, like like Lou treated everyone, probably. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> true, true. It happened at times, yeah, but <laughs> this was a fit that couldn't last, because nah. it was just uh, one happy, a quicksilver. This yeah, I mean, how long was she, I mean, how long would she have been with them, a year? Maybe, yeah. Maybe. And played some, and again, she only had the three songs to sing, so... Right, she she's up there people. on stage, just has you know, shake right. a tambourine and you know, wait for her song. Oh, and, and also, I read something really funny that she did you that, um, that she it was reported that Nico thought that the, the song's kind of a upbeat and everything, but she thought it was originally she thought it was Sunday morning, like it was morning, oh, like M O U R N I N G. Is it not solo, morning? Yeah. yeah, when you listen to Nico's solo records, it becomes clear why she would think that. Because right, right, yeah, yeah, the right, Marvel so, Index. So it opens up with that with that instrument. It's a Celeste. How is it pronounced? It's called Celeste. Oh, I'm glad you said that because I was going to say. I know, Celeste. Celeste. Yeah, right. Marie Celeste. 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 They make them yeah. nice pot pies. And Kale basically went in the studio and saw that and said, and just Sat decided kind of on the spot, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to play this. And one of the good things was um, Sterling Morrison, his uh, parents lived in Jensen Beach, which was near Stewart. So once a year he'd come down and I'd see him and you'd yak and yak. So I've listened yeah. to the record a couple of times with him and he talked about it. It's just a little bit sharp. 
That yes. Ding, 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 ding. Oh, right. Ding. Yeah, it's yeah. It's not quite sweet. Right. Yes. And it could have been played that way, but everything, they had tones on this record. And that's the beauty of the colors and tones. It's not right. conventional. That's right. Yeah. It's but got this that edge and, to it. But this song is the, maybe the most conventional sounding one on the on the record itself, yes. just because it's a little more produced. It's a nice opener. And as Open yeah, your mirror has, is pretty is pretty much. But just it, a, it is yeah. true. It's a good way to start because yes, you get in, but it's a it's a complicated, uh, seductive, but you know, paranoia and, and, guilt song. And Lou Reed, he's great. Lou Reed, he's one of my favorite songwriters ever because he manages to take these simple sounding words and simple lyrics that are pretty but they have so much behind them so much uh right. they just paint he, he could paint a picture with just you know, a certain turn of you know uh that, frame. yeah you know that lou is talking about a real something real that happened and that he's he's he may not give you the whole thing right but you get the feeling that it was an actual event that happened you yeah know, he's, he's, and it's just it could just be a song just about a sunday morning song but he, when he says watch out the world's right. behind you paranoia, there's man. always someone around you who will call it's nothing at all yeah. and it's just like it's that little edge to this song which could just be like a pretty little uh, nothing song but it's not well fully fully and the idea of maybe taking that 3 a.m with kale night <laughs> and then making that into this but then a reflection on he talks about early morning I'm sorry, early dawning Sunday morning, it's just a wasted year so yeah. close behind. Right, yeah. right. Him feeling, well, we were out here partying all night, these wasted years, all this. I should be, you know, he came from a nice home with yeah. his parents. Yeah. Oh, his parents yeah. were so yeah. disappointed. So yeah. he's something like that. Yeah. So that reflection in that, but to make it a universal feeling for all of us. We've had those feelings. Sure. That. Yes. That, yeah, that feeling like I'm, I'm wasting my life. Right. Especially that's a common thing when you're younger. You think like, you know, man. All what the, am I doing? All the streets you've crossed, right? Yeah. About that. But yeah, yeah, beautifully done and just a, a tremendous. Uh, and uh, so now we get opening. to the, the second song on the record, which I have, which Charlie Pickett has said is the greatest rock it song is. I, ever I'm written. I'm with Charlie on this. I think it's my favorite. <laughs> I'm waiting my, for the man. It's my favorite rock and yeah. roll recording. And it's basically, ever. it's a song just about scoring $26 worth of heroin in Harlem. And it, it just it, it just paints such a picture of that, and just by the authenticity, uh, by, the, <laughs> by the sound of it and the driving of it, and uh, and Reed, Rita said everything about that song holds true except the price. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he's Mo is playing a. She's playing a, it's like a tambourine and a floor tom and a snare. And it's not, there's, it's not a conventional rock and roll drum beat. She's just going bum, 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 yeah. bum, 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 bum. It's a continuous pulse. With Kale's piano. Kale's piano right. doing the same thing up underneath it. He's just playing octave notes. Now, what did you, Mike, when you first heard this song, when you first heard it, like, what did you think? Like, uh, did you know anything about, did, did, no. you, did you know about scoring heroin? No, and, no, no. <laughs> you no. didn't, right? No, I said, well, this is some New York kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Something hey, white boy. Stuff. Hey, white boy. <laughs> yeah. What you doing I knew about, uptown? You know, there's some neighborhoods that were, you know. Yeah, right. You yeah. know, different. places you, you go, places careful. you don't go. Right. right. But this or places was, you go for one specific yeah. thing. But I was reading Kerouac and some things like that. So right. I had some right. ideas about that. But to me, these were cautionary tales. So they, right, it they wasn't had a lot like, of good lessons. It wasn't like, yeah, oh, this is yeah, this is just what happened. And that's the, I guess that's the thing about Lou and his songwriting is, is that there is that aspect of, no, this is just what happened. Not like, 
Right, right, right. It's, it's what happened at this moment, but again, we've all probably had times when we're out there doing something, maybe not getting drugs, <laughs> right. but something, maybe not even illegal, yeah. but doing something that you're a little, you know, uneasy, right. adventurous yeah, well, thing, and you're doing that, and you feel that tension. Right, the tension, and, exactly. And beautifully built up. There's a great quote by Kale here. He says, this is one of our drone songs. I liked it because it was rock and roll. I hammered the piano, smacking with fists. Right. There's no backbeat for Maureen's drums. Right, that's right. Very British sounding, mid-60s pops, like the Honeycombs, Have I the Right. You know that song. Have I the Right. Don't well, you can put I'll that put in. I'll put it right up underneath you. So we'll know. <laughs> Lou came up with the riff, and the solos were crazy. Sterling used to do the solos live. His method was to play like unwinding a ball of string where you wind up in the right place. Yeah, but right. a beautiful sentiment about that. Yeah. But to take a song like this, when you hear the honeycombs, take a, a like a, a cool, catchy pop song, right? And then okay, I'm going to put this kind of sensibility, back. right? Okay. Turn, it, uh, turn it on its ear, and the fact yeah. that you can get all these musicians were on board with it and right. created this yeah. thing together. Right. And, and yeah, the, an interesting the, thing for me, the anecdote about this song that does it for me is that on the uh, scepter sound, there's an acetate that was discovered. Mike apparently pulled one out from underneath Maureen Tucker's bed, and it was terribly scratched up. It's the original Dolph acetate that people have heard, but there was a cleaner one that was found that I guess went for like $75,000 or something. 25 a deal. 25, 25 grand on eBay. Right, yeah, eBay. I saw that. So when they're these early, the, the, the slightly pre-Tom Wilson waiting for the man, Lou Reed says, I'm waiting for the man. When Tom, the Tom Wilson version, the final version of the song, there's a slight transformation in the lyric that changes everything about it. He says, I'm waiting for my man. Right, he changes right. the word the to the word my, and it does something to it that totally <coughs> changes the whole feel of it. And you're like, oh, Personal. wow. Because it's like, you know... He's he's waiting for my I'm waiting for my man right. you know waiting for the guy the guy who's got the stuff not the man my man personal right, right. and uh, so you mentioned David Bowie earlier and David Bowie said that he played this song in Britain before the record even was released in America because he got a hold of that acetate because a friend of his was doing some work with Andy Warhol at the factory. And as he was leaving, Andy said, oh, I just made an album with some people. Maybe you can, <laughs> maybe you can take it back to England and see if you can get any interest over can there. You, can you imagine? No, this is great. Bowie said, my friend gave it to me, and he said, this is crap. You like weird stuff, so maybe you'll enjoy it. There we go. Well, that was European Sun. It let up. Yeah, exactly. and, he, and, he play, and he listened to it, and he said, this is the future of music. Bowie knew, of yeah, course. Right, Bowie yeah, knew this is yeah, the future yeah. of music. And, and he made his band learn it. And they played it. Yeah, well, Brian, Brian Eno's favorite albums, uh, Velvet Underground, First Velvet's Record, and uh, Trout Mask Replica by Captain Beefheart. So those things have a huge imp- even though, you know, the, a lot of people have heard things that Brian Eno have worked on and would never, ever listen to this record and go and enjoy it. It would just be, you know... Not gonna happen. It's right. Yeah, yeah. Definitely, but it, it, definitely. it, it, it get, you would have changed David Bowie's life the first time you listened to it. Like Bob Dylan putting on that. It was '78 in the on his parents' Victrola. It was in the closet, drifting too far from shore. And he says, it, from the beginning of the song to the end of the song. At the beginning, I was, I was, I wasn't Bob Dylan. And at the end of the song, I was Bob Dylan. So they, like David Bowie, here's this thing, and you got to go. Oh, it transformed him in one, you know. Like, right, he said that he knew this is the this future is of music. This is yeah, it, and in me. But then I'm part of that, too. Exactly, and what you hear in all this, you hear commitment. 
these yeah. people are committed. Yes, yes. They have yeah, ideas. Yeah. Some yeah. people would say it sounds like they should be committed. Should be committed. <laughs> <laughs> but, but everyone's different. But well, Lou real. and it's Lou real. had had some real experience of course, with those. No, that's the thing. His parents did commit it. Oh, no, no. It's seriously personal. Yeah, electroshock therapy. It comes through. It comes through. All right, so we get the third song now. We finally we finally get Nico gets to sing a song. Femme Fatale. Right, yeah. Yeah, this is Femme Fatale. And he wanted, Warhol wanted him to write a song for Edie, for Edie Sedgwick. Yeah. And what year did What a change from those first two songs. Right, right. now, Femme Fatale. Yeah, this really pretty song. Here she comes. You better watch your step. She's going to break your heart in two. She's definitely going to break your heart in two. It's not hard to realize. Just look into her false colored eyes. What a great line. She builds you up just to put you down. What a clown. And I love what how she pronounces it. What a clown. Because <laughs> <laughs> everybody knows she's a femme fatale. Um, and yes. And the way Lou and John, or, and, or maybe Lou and Sterling, I don't know who's doing the background vocals on this. Yeah. But they, from the, the, the uh, Scepter demos, they're singing regular background vocals. This Tom Wilson version. Somebody's going, she's a femme fatale. <laughs> and the way that, you know, is not... Commercial, no, right? No. Yeah, I think I, 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 made, I think that's Reed and Sterling. I think that's Reed and Sterling doing the, those backups there. Yeah. yeah, and it is. It's very effective. And and Nico, I know some people just they cannot. Her voice is not for everyone. It's definitely not uh, not a classic. She's, she wasn't like some amazing singer. Yeah, there's no vibrato. It's very it's such a straight but she brings tone. a quality to these songs that is just like it's just oh, like it's unbelievable. It's like well, Chelsea Stark Girl. Yeah, that solo record that she. It's actually they they bundled her first solo album with this Velvet, the 45th uh, anniversary release of the first Velvet's record. And uh, for one thing, let me just say, listen to that today, Jackson Brown's an amazing guitar player. That I had no idea. Listening to the song, I was like, oh my God, who's playing guitar on this? And I'll like, oh, it's Jackson Brown. And then you get to the songs, Lou's playing guitar, you're like, okay, I recognize Lou's guitar playing very much more right. in the pocket. Right. Um, but her voice on that... You, you, it's much sweeter. Like everything is sweeter. It's like, oh, okay, this is, uh, you know, we're gonna go a little bit uh, uh, more, definitely more. Com- and who produced? Did Tom Wilson produce Chelsea Girl? Yes. So yeah, and he had a chance to say, I, I want to make that this. That was a- his pet project, right? Yeah. So, okay. Right. All right. So um, I also wanted to mention the the guitars, the, the cheap right. guitars on "Waiting for the Man." And oh this, yeah. those riffing guitars. Yes. They're 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 not sweet. No. They got kind of <laughs> twangy, sour edge to it. Right. Well, yes. that was one of the reasons I thought something was wrong with the record my Man. first time because right. it's got it yeah. almost sounds like a buzz, like a buzzing yeah, like sound. A buzzing. Yeah. And they must have been I don't know what kind of guitar, but they yeah, must have been one low. of them had a Gretsch and they had some you know Vox guitars and whatever. I, and I think they were they're tuned down. The guitar are tuned down to D and if you haven't if you haven't bought heavier strings it's going to sound a little floppy and that's some of that is that is it just gives it a different sound and uh, um, Lou is and and Sterling are definitely not making an attempt to make it sound prettier in the way they're playing so they're whacking at it pretty good and speaking of not sounding pretty uh, we get to the number four song, which is Venus and Fur. Oh, yeah. This is one. This is one of my all-time favorite uh, songs ever, uh, just because it's a song that sounds exactly like what the, the it's about. Yes. Uh, it was inspired by a novella of the same name, Venus and Furs, written by uh, Australian Austrian author Leopold von Sacher 
Mesach. <laughs> Leopold von Sacher Mesach in the 18, 1870s. And this is one of the first ones where he uses that ostrich tuning, which he called it. Yes. Which is which he, he invented, which all strings are tuned to the, the same, same note, note. And he used on the ostrich by Lou Reed and the Primitive. <laughs> right. Which was like right. a novelty song, yes. right? Yes. And that when Lou was working at Pickwick and uh, those... Uh, the things he wrote for Pickwick, you have to wonder, like, who at Pickwick was giving him a paycheck and going, great job, Lou. Right. Really, I think this one's going to be, because they're just wacky nonsense. Right. Basically, you got to think, it's definitely some crank, snort some crank, unless we got right. to do this song, what are we going to do, the ostrich? And he's tuned his guitar. So also, it harkens back to Venus the First, off the, the origin of the name, the Velvet Underground, which, for not you know, is a, is a factoid. Is comes from a S and M uh, was is a, a book about suburban wife swapping. It was kind of suburban. a soft <laughs> porn, the new uh, morality in America. Oh, the Velvet Underground. I think a oh, paperback. There we go. I think, I think Tony Conrad, one of John Cale's drone partners, go. found it in the street. So it was a perfect way to find this book in the street. Right. So right. this is us. Rather yeah. than you could win some money in a trivia contest that they they call themselves the Warlocks, same thing Grateful Dead right. did for a while. Exactly. War, right. Ah. The Warlocks, so you could get some money for that. Oh, that would have been, been terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't work at all. And then, then they were the Falling Spikes, which is pretty good. It's pretty yeah, yeah, Falling, falling spikes, spikes. But I could yeah. see that. <laughs> Velvet Underground work because they said yes, we're underground. Right. They, right. They were trying to be desperately. And 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 you got to figure this is the the genius of Lou Reed is because he wanted to write a song about this book, this crazy book, but but. Anyone, someone could have just taken it and just wrote and wrote some like stupid shitty song about it. No. But he no. writes this beautiful, yeah. uh, evocative song yeah. about a really dark subject. Yes. And uh, shiny, shiny, shiny boots of leather, whiplash, whiplash girl, girl child, child in, in the, the dark. dark. Yeah. And then just the, the line, the, the the line that always gets me here is when he talks about. Um, Different colors, uh, uh, um, made of tears. Made different of tears. colors, and definitely, oh, it's, yeah. Right, I, I, it's literature. Yeah. Literature. And what did you think when you first heard this? What did you think yeah, this right. One? Hard to escape this, is this serious. one. <laughs> this is another experience okay. because you're yeah. wrapped up in this. They created this world. And right, again, right, right. It's how different it is from waiting for the man. Yes. But yeah. I mean, totally intense. Also, something that I've never. Yeah, you weren't. You weren't no idea about it. You weren't like wow, going around, running around, getting tied up and whipped and shit at that point in your life. You just figured there's some serious idea about wow, these people. This is what comes out of this. Plus, you know, they're hanging at the uh, factory. I'm sure that there's people they were involved with who were, you know, this firsthand. You know, to get some firsthand knowledge of what's going on in the Venus and Furs. I don't think that's a a shock to anybody. Very true. Very true. that's what uh, one thing Sterling was saying again with the perfect percussion. How simple. Oh, yeah, yeah right. percussion. And the viola. Just right, yeah. Yeah, right. Sterling would say, show me another band that sounds like that. No, Between that and uh, Black Angel Death Song. Those are the two songs yeah. nobody to this day. No, no, because it's that. not. To create a mood, have the music create yes. a mood like that. And I don't know if you know, now, Mike, I, I figured, I was I, I knew what a Velvet Underground historian that I, I don't think there's anything I could throw at you that you wouldn't know. But did you know that um, the song was used to sell tires? <laughs> 
Did you know you knew that, right? In the UK, I think. Uh, Dunlop, yeah, yeah Dunlop. Dunlop in, in, in the 1990. No, no, no yeah. they did though. In the 1993 commercial for Dunlop that was in the UK, the song plays as a car drives through a surreal landscape filled with obstacles controlled by a mysterious figure. And they knew, and they said that, that they knew the song was what the theme is, and that's what they wanted. They wanted that dark theme for their tire ads. That's right. That's right. Yeah, there was a picture sleeve I think came out. Yes. I, God damn it, Mike! I get. All right, I'm, I'm sure, going to stop you yeah, before the end. Before the end, I'm going to try and stop uh, you. Well, it's yeah. funny. Take that Nick Drake with his pink moon uh, Volkswagen. Right? <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. All right, yeah. So let's take a little break. Uh, let's refresh our drinks. Um, we'll take off our sunglasses and polish them up a little, and uh, maybe put on a different, um, a different sweater. Change our underwear. Turtleneck. Change our turtlenecks, and we'll be back uh, with the second part of uh, the Velvet Underground and Nico with Mike Stop the madness. Buy a mattress. We need you to buy a mattress. You need something to sleep on. We have something for you to sleep on. We have a mattress. We have bedding. We have something for you to fall asleep in and stay asleep in for a significant period of time. Why, I'm talking about the Is This Tomorrow Mattress. That's the Is This Tomorrow Mattress, available at isthistomorrow.com. Aside from being a decades-long, hilarious webcomic, Is This Tomorrow has branched out into bedding for human beings. Bedding that surpasses the previously tried and failed bedding materials such as pencil shavings, golf balls, or bags of balloons. You're not a squirrel. You can't sleep on pencil shavings. And if you can, are you a squirrel? This is not just an academic question. Are you a squirrel? If so, please contact us. The Is This Tomorrow mattress expands from the size of a matchbook to a full king-size mattress. Advanced polycarbonate materials are employed in the manufacture of our bedding. The Is This Tomorrow mattress should only be opened in a very large enclosed space. While wearing a gas mask, you should probably have a priest present. Under no circumstances should you jump up and down on the mattress. It was manufactured in a jet aircraft factory. But I don't need a king-size mattress. Okay, I hear you, don't yell. All you have to do is cut the king-size mattress down to the size you want. Queen, full, fraternal twin, crib, manger, doll bed, Barbie with no legs, thrift store keychain, or the popular amoeba size bed. The Is This Tomorrow matchbook size jet aircraft factory manufactured mattress which should only be opened in an enclosed space while a priest is present is available at isthistomorrow.com for the very low price of $9.99 no returns or refunds are accepted once again that's is this tomorrow at is this tomorrow.com don't hesitate this is a limited time offer oh right <coughs> through the final single back in new york but in the end i mean 
But they didn't go out to L.A., did yeah. they? Yeah, they, they, they oh, flew they, out. Oh, wow. Because they re-recorded, I think, three Guys, songs from the acetate. this is interesting stuff we could be talking about oh, It's recording. Don't worry, dude. <laughs> okay. You know me. I know when to press record. Oh, yeah. It's on there. <laughs> we're, we're always back before we're back, so I get those All right, here we are. All right, we're back. Now we're back for real. Yep. On That Record Got Me High, that's Barry Stock. That's Rob Elba. And we're here with our special guest. Mike Kostick, MC Kostick, founder of the Velvet Underground Appreciation Society, and also attendee of the uh, Woodstock Festival. Yeah, the same year. I saw the Velvets in March and Woodstock in August. So that was quite a year. Life. That was that worked out pretty well. As I recall the story, you hitchhiked with a bag of Doritos. <laughs> no, I wound up with a bag of Doritos. Well, lucky, I had a, ten, a sister who was ten years older than I was, so uh, she was twenty-six, sixteen. So she went. You there. were sixteen. Yeah. Oh, Jesus yeah. Christ. Wait, you were 16 when you saw the Velvet Underground? Yeah, it's scary. Yeah. How scary. are you even normal? How are you a functional person? <laughs> look at it. Somehow. Is he functional? But, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Let's not go. Let's, and look, let's keep moving. All this time. She's a Velvet Underground fan, too. What is she? But I just want to say that, that a friend of mine, Phil Milstein, he really started it in 1976. We went okay. to the University of Massachusetts to get a hammer. Okay. We were in the same house. And Phil was the one who really started to put it together. I helped Got him it. with this and that. Okay. Right, right. But he did it. I picked it up in 83. And Ben, there's also a, a book. I saw a book. Uh, what is it called? The Velvet Underground Handbook? Handbook, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Back in right. the 90s, I think. The first kind of illustrated discography yeah. for a British. Yeah. Um, and you also are briefly visible in the Woodstock film, as I recall. Yeah, I had a scene with Jimmy and all. It worked out well. <laughs> a scene with Jimmy. He did it in one take. It worked out good. Yeah. He lifts his arm to play his guitar with his teeth during the Star Spangled Banner. Yeah. And did. if you look straight through the crook of his arm, there's a guy with a hat, yeah, floppy, floppy hat. I've given my nodding nod of approval. Back in, because if you ever with Mike at a show, it's the sh- things are good. He's going to be nodding his head. All right. Like so this. the 16-year-old Mike, and how about your sister? Was she is she in there too? The scene? No, she was off. <laughs> no, we left doing some of that brown acid. Right, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> my, Don't eat the brown acid. My friend and I. So they, we came in a camper. So they parked in the camping zone and built yeah. a pop up tent. So we Friday, uh, Friday afternoon we said, well, we'll go down to the. We'll meet you in front of the stage. <laughs> we took There's her only, my um, ticket. Yeah, sure. Yeah, we'll meet you in front that of the stage. reasonable. We saw her again on, on Monday. Monday, uh, right. That's so, amazing. Yeah. It was one of those That good is things. awesome. You yeah. can't do, a 16-year-old can't do that it was crazy. today. It was Their crazy. parents, I, I wouldn't allow it. Would you allow that, Barry? <laughs> well, I, my first concert was at 13, and it was a Black Sabbath concert, so you figure it out. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it was a different time, right? It was a different time. Different time. Different we're time. not like that now. Yes. yes. All right. So we're up to, to the fifth song on this record, and it's Run, Run, Run. I Frantic. love this song. Oh. And this song was written on the back of an envelope by Lou Reed while he and the band were on their way to a gig at Cafe Bazaar. Yeah, Cafe Bazaar, yeah. Uh, and this song details a number of characters living in New York City, including Teenage Mary, Margarita Passion, Seasick Sarah, and Beardless Beardless water waste. Couldn't even get sweet small town taste. Rode the trolley the 47th. Figured if he was good, he'd get himself to heaven. He's uh, And this song harkens back to the uh, Willie Dixon, uh, Howlin' Wolf song, Wang Dang Doodle, with the list of characters, yeah, yeah. where you've got oh, this okay. list of characters yeah, yeah. going on. I would say that... Uh, Automatic Slim. Uh, right, Razor Toad Jim. Butcher knife, tie, butcher knife toad nanny and fast talking fanny. Okay. Now I'm gonna be honest. Like this song, this record didn't have lyrics with it, right? It didn't have a lyric oh. sheet. 
So what, the, I'm gonna be totally honest now, this may make me sound like a nerd, but I did not know they were saying uh, Gypsy Death in it no until way. recently, no right? Way. You gotta, okay, yeah, good, you, I don't feel. Yeah, you gotta sort of, you gotta listen to it for a while and maybe sort of intuit that that, because it doesn't, it's not immediately. Back in running the fan club, I was trying to do the lyrics. Right. <laughs> I got stuck on that, that line. Right. And like I used Sterling. to think they were saying, it's the death of you. Yeah, I'd say, yeah, it's the death, death of you. you. Yeah. Well, well there's, like, a, there's a cover of this by this band called the Riots, R-I-A-T-S. It's on YouTube. You can listen to it. It's absurd. You wonder how in the Dutch? hell, yeah. they're, how in the hell did they end up, and it's like this haze, like this upbeat, <laughs> and they get, they get everything wrong. Like, you're like, oh, no. Oh, that's that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Everything is wrong. The whole, all the lyrics are wrong. Play some of that. Have some of that. I, I, I no doubt. That. It's I going in there. there. Yeah. It, it was funny though. I just so Sterling. What's his line? He goes, "Gypsy death and you." Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, duh. I mean, what else? Because apparently it was. It's basically slang for a overdose, for a drug overdose. Oh, it's a gypsy oh, death. Gypsy yeah. death. death uh, and you. Yeah, 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 that's yeah, it. Okay. So another yeah. cautionary, cautionary yeah. song. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yes, they were really. Yeah, they were. They were all about the kids, you know. It's only kids what well, not to do. Well, he's putting it down. It wasn't for it against it. Exactly. It yeah. Well, yeah. And it was. It out there. A few years later, Lou kind of revisits the story in Street Hassle, where he's got that guy brings his wife into into the city for the the weekend to party, and they end up doing heroin, and the old lady overdoses, and the guy says to him, "You know, you just drag her out in the street, and it's just another." Another OD. He's gotta, you just gotta walk it off, bud. Another gypsy death. Yeah. Oh, you <laughs> Lou's not. Lou's not. Lou's not. He's not gonna sugarcoat anything. No, 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 no definitely not. Gives you, that's it. Yeah. Authentic. Do you like? You, you like Authentic. it? You like? You don't like it? I don't care. This yeah. is what happened. And think about it, this is fifty-two-year-old record. We're hearing the production and on yeah. still. We're not saying anything sound sappy or corny no. or, no. or outdated. Nope. Amazing. It's, it's, same stuff goes on. It's going on right now. Right. Right. And, so this and, is... uh, and now we get to another Nico song, which this is another. Uh, All tomorrow's parties is just. Oh. This is such a. This, this is the this, majestic. Yeah, the majestic, like, expansive. The sound of this yes. song. Yeah. Uh, it's haunting. It's like beautifully. <laughs> you have this great slow building intro to this. And one thing I forgot to mention, please, and when you do the music, put the. Outro to Venus and Fur, that beautiful guitar run. Oh, sure, yeah. yeah way out. That's no incredible. Problem. And you said they didn't he's do that in 83. Uh, micromanaging. He's uh, micromanaging what you're going to put in there. So right. the <laughs> that gets lost. That, that's that great right. guitar you outro. That you know that I'm not averse to suggestions. <laughs> yeah. I'm you are for me. <laughs> well, this is a good one. If Mike says it's it, a, it's okay. <laughs> Yeah, but that's a great. That's you a really great outro. You really want to get into this now. You really great outro. <laughs> Let's do it. You want? What is this? The, remember that cartoon, the Lockhorns? You really want to get into that Lockhorn situation right now? Um, Village Voice rock critic Richard Goldstein called. Uh, this is a great. He called uh, Nico half goddess, half icicle. Yeah. And he reviewed her saying she sings in perfect mellow ovals. It sounds something like a cello g- yeah. getting up in the morning. That's exactly, that's, yes, that's exactly yes. right. Isn't that yeah. great? Yes. yes. <laughs> the pool goes away. And then he and then he gets Luke gets her to say clowns again in this clown. song. Yes. <laughs> but Thursday's child is Sunday's clown, clown for whom none will go mourning. It's such. It's sad. This is like sort of like an anti kind of, a Cinderella has, tale. It is, oh yeah, it is exactly, right. Exactly. This has a feel of almost a like a magical or an older. It's like Lou going further back in uh, in uh, songwriting than you know. Uh, it sounds like a, um, a 
almost a medieval feel. Yes, to yeah, definitely. That, yeah. that slow funeral march. Yes, yeah. the Mo doing that great, just that boom, boom, boom. That, that drum, they got a great, like, uh, like hollow drum sound in this that just makes it sound so That's like so a timpani, but I'm sure it's probably a bass drum turned on its side. Probably, <laughs> yeah. And we can't afford a timpani. And another good Tom Wilson production to double track the vocal. Right, Because the exactly. single track is okay. It's but the double track really makes it oh, okay, very okay, special. Okay. Yeah, I think there is a... Great um, atmosphere. There's two versions around. <clears throat> and there's also a version of them doing this in the hotel room, Lou, John, and Sterling, which is a uh, folk style. Uh, um, and it's very different. These songs these songs mutated. Uh, we didn't talk about the Waiting for the Man, the... Um, Starts off as a country blues yeah, in the hotel room, blues, that's right. very much, uh, uh, and and, not, and I'm gonna say not a super convincing country blues, <laughs> <laughs> like the yokels. Like yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Definitely would would not have been the same thing if they kept that vibe. <laughs> no, right? yeah, it was it not. Um, it was smart. See, that's why I'm not a fan. I know completists and everything love hearing all the different versions, but I like to hear the version that's the version that they wanted to well, present that's, to you. Yeah, there's something to be said for that. True. Right. Yeah. Sometimes hearing the other versions keep, it might dilute your experience a little bit sometimes it doesn't but uh, you know the appreciation has to be for the forms of the time right that's what they had to work right. with there was country music there was rhythm and blues yeah. there was folk going on Dylan at the time yeah they're trying to overcome all that right and well, who, take it who was else. it that said uh, I finally turned Lou all got him away from Dylan was Kale. that Kale yeah so <laughs> Dylan was so impressive oh my God. everybody yeah. Right. Yeah. but musically formed that's why it's great. Well, yeah, Blonde on Blonde is 66, right? So yeah, that's hitting right about this time. So yeah, everybody's I was 61 oh, already, yeah, and bring sure. on back home. It was yeah. hip, that was the hippest hip thing, right? Yeah, right, so right. yeah. So this do. this song is so beautiful, and Nico adds just a sense of like a mourning for the oh. girl. You feel bad for her. She'll uh, and, and where will she go? And what will she do when midnight comes around? She'll turn once more to Sunday's clown and cry. Behind the door. You know what I, the feeling I get from Lou's writing in this is always though he doesn't really have sympathy for her. <laughs> we do. She dug we her do, grave, but he does. Basically, saying she gets what she gets. She did what she did, and this uh, is what happened. You're probably not right. her. It's not the scene she should be in, right? She should be trying to be up with all these hip, That's right. beautiful people. She's gonna end up laugh. dead. End yeah. up, end up out in the street with the you know ambulance showing up, and you know. Uh, poor Nico. <laughs> well, she died riding a bicycle, as I recall. That's right. right in she did. Ibiza, right? Yeah. Uh, yep. Ibiza? Yeah, in Ibiza. In Ibiza, yeah. yeah. But another beautiful guitar outro by that. Yes, Just yes. The way to end the side is phenomenal. It is. Right, yeah, the end way. of the side. Yeah, and that's right. When we talk about these old records, you have to talk the about side, it as a yes. record because that's it. The sequencing is, is so important. And then we flip the record open. And it over, starts with uh, the one. starts with yeah. the song. El Senor, the song. Heroin. Yeah. This yeah. is the song I feel that made, yeah, this, the, like I said, for me, when I had that epiphany listening to this song because you never before was there a song a band took a song about the subject and made a song like this and know? why would you do heroin it's right. it's like right. if the song is like no. well, why would anybody do that but I'll, well, uh, all right i'm gonna just cover out of here i've never done heroin yeah, I've either, never either. Done. Mike? yeah no. no no but having never done heroin i can imagine That's probably why we're sitting this here. is but this is how shooting heroin feels listening to this song well, i he imagine definitely, that. he definitely when I'm, you know, he definitely wanted to incorporate those feelings into the. Oh yeah. Into the, well, we talked about it a long time ago. Mike and I talked about we probably probably thirty years ago. We talked about white light, white heat, 
And he said it's like amphetamine. It's like when you, you do some speed, white light, white heat, and you're, you just get this blast of, you know, uh, of, of rush of energy in your brain, and you're just right. You're and he made it of, sound like that. Like you sound, sound like exactly doing it. So right. you don't have to do it. You just right. listen to exactly. the song. Especially the end. White light, white heat, or up at the, where they're just, just playing. Everybody's higher, higher, and he says, "Play higher," and they're going, they're just playing higher and higher. And Joe Strummer must have loved that song. I'm sure. uh, yeah, yeah. Right? We've had that discussion as well about the English right, so punk scene. What is it about the song? There's two chords, basically two chords in the yep. song. Yep. Build up the build up. The, the dynamics. The this dynamics. song is all about dynamics, and it's stunningly dynamic. Yes. Uh, there's uh, no bass guitar in this song. Yeah, no. No, there's no bass guitar Nothing. in this song. Yeah, because by the way, did you? We didn't mention that um, Sterling Morrison played bass in uh, in the first, in Sunday Morning, but he he hated playing bass. They had to like force him to play bass. He did not like playing. Well, bass. Well, Kale played bass on some things, and then uh, he overdubbed it. Yeah, but yeah. Sterling did just he was probably beneath him. He probably thought it was beneath him. True, but it was, he did beautifully because the thing about playing behind Kale's drones. Right. Like to play bass behind that and right. make it sympathetic. Right. Yeah, yeah, Wonderfully yeah. done. Again, the, yeah. the the feeling of this record there's never like a moment that seems like corny. No. Phony no. Yeah. Or, oh yeah. No corny. Yeah. That's that's, that's exactly. So true. Right. There's nothing about it that's phony. And yeah. there's no even though there's no bass guitar. There's no. You don't miss anything in this song. No. You wouldn't no, think. You wouldn't perfect, think. Oh, there's something wrong with it. The way it is. And also um, the the drumming. Just uh, Mo Tucker's drumming in this song is so like frantic and then you get the ebbs and flows because it's just she she winds down she winds up and around 517 mark she stops drumming you listen to it for a little bit and then picks up again and then she said as soon as everything got loud and fast i couldn't hear anything i couldn't hear anybody so i stopped assuming well they'll stop too and say what's the matter mo but nobody stopped and then you know so i came back in yeah that's the and one that's that how picked. it ended that's the yes, one and she ended. said and she still she yeah. was mad for so many years yeah. like they had to put that on the record yeah but in a way it works because uh, it does work chaos you put in some and chaos i would never like, like i remember that listening to it but i i would think it's by uh, a design like it's all by design to me because yeah. it's right. all just sure. so perfect right yeah you know well i had another mo quote from the distant past that i was she actually told me was we were talking about that song on white light white heat that i heard her call my name which has this incredible just caterwaul guitar solo what lester bangs listed it as one of the five great guitar solos of all time up there with uh, gimme shelter uh, and uh or or or, or, or sympathy for the devil and and you know these solos where you're like or, or marquee moon and so lou is just going cr- you know just this really loud insane solo in the mix and goes yeah when we were mixing that and uh, Lou just like reached up and turned up his guitar. He just ruined the per- ruined this perfectly good song. <laughs> but, That's right. That was Mo's opinion. Yep. Was it would have been better without that crazy loud guitar up in there? Well, yeah, yeah. That was Lou's mix. That was Lou's mix. So, now, I will. I will say I did have kidney stones once. Oh. And they gave me some, I think, uh, Dilaudid. Yes, uh, me at the too. Hospital. I, and that was instant Tahiti. So that's right. the closest thing. So that gives me the idea better off than dead or anything. Mike, we too had a kidney stone and morphine. They gave like, you morphine and, all of a sudden, and you don't care about anything. It's all over. Like, whatever. <laughs> you don't I'm, give a shit. I'm set free. I was in a, I was in a, a, a hospital gown with my ass uh-huh. showing, and yeah. it's like, you don't care. No way. It was right. in the hand. <laughs> yeah. So you could, but I thought, wow, this is powerful stuff. I can see is. where people would go here. Well, look at the, well, that's actually timely because. Good. 
look at all the people in our country who get addicted oh, to the pills. Yeah. And then yeah. they made the pills hard to get and hard to crush up and expensive. And somebody just said to him, you should just go get some heroin because it's, it's the same thing and it's a hell of a lot cheaper. Well, we talked about this last week. They're finally uh, going after the company that pushed them on people and <laughs> yeah. lied about yeah. their effectiveness, et cetera. So the end, the end lyrics in this song, they perfectly capture the nihilism of drug addiction. Yeah. Uh, he says, because when the smack begins to flow, flow and I really don't care anymore, ah, when the heroin is in my blood and that blood is in my head, yeah. then thank God I'm as good as dead. And thank your God that I'm not aware. And thank God that I just don't, don't care. care. And I guess that I just don't know. Oh, I guess that I just And he don't doesn't know. care that he doesn't know. Right, exactly. Because you don't. That's what you said. You don't care about anything. No, you're, right. you're free. Yeah. And that's set over to be one of the greatest solos ever. The kale. Oh, the older he, oh yes. he does the That same. screeching, yes. wailing, caterwauling, like the New York yeah. subway. Do you remember yeah. the subways? How yeah. they go around the floor? Oh, yes. Yes. Sure. yes. That's where that came That's from. what Kale's Could doing. Could you imagine? I would, if, if there was a video of him doing that in the studio. Just well, that's seeing the thing. That, right. You know? right. The dearth of any sort of the film, the film documentation of the Velvets is so sparse. And it's very sad. Very, very sparse. But again, what a perfect scene. And you wonder, you said Warhol, all those films he yep. was making, all of that crap he was filming, you know, but filming a, you know. A, one, one Warhol movie, one Velvet movie, yeah, sad. Yeah. <laughs> all right, but we have this record to but talk what a, about. True, made true. You think, I don't know if you'll get into the no, I don't know thing, because that's kind of. Sure. A Let little thing. Do it, thing? man. What's the thing? Well, the original, the, the uh, demo in the beginning, Lou says, I know uh, just where I'm going. Oh, uh, okay. Yes, that's right. That's and then right. when we recorded yeah. it, I don't know, don't know yeah. where, I'm, just where going. I'm going. And Kale said, that changes everything. Yeah, right. right. Makes the whole, it's like I'm waiting for the man, I'm waiting for my man. Right. Changes right. the whole feel of everything. Because if you know you're taking heroin just to get it to becomes get there, a, it right. becomes a little right. tawdry. You are, yeah, you it are a little just escapee. That's but, I don't but if you feel like, oh, I'm a soul, I'm conflicted, I don't know what to do, I'm going right. to try this thing, <laughs> that changes it. And he talks about how this is a, um, not about taking drugs, Kale. So this is about a person who hates himself. Yeah. And it's not clear to anybody why he hates himself. Because there's that conviction in the first line, I know just where I'm going. So you try to build up, to build up some empathy for that. Yeah. It makes the song more powerful and gives it more drive. When you say, I don't know where I'm going, it, it gives the game away in the first line. So that's a different thing. To me, it, it, it works great both ways. Because right. it does say in the end, and I guess that I just don't know. Yes, right. I just don't right. know. Despite you go through all this, and you're, 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 uh, it's your wife, the it's your life. Yeah. Right. And Lou so. Reed was great at that because he knew how important words were using just the right word. The duality. Yeah. Get right. Just yeah. the right, uh, just the right message and feeling. And I will say on there on the live on the nineteen. 19- 69 uh, the um, yeah the 69 live there's two versions of this and they're and they're both great <laughs> I love both of them yeah. they're a little different right. yeah. and they're still they're just oh and there's a version great. on Rock and Roll Animal right that's yep. well, well that's really too. different yeah that's it's really a big different. blast up yeah, 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 yeah. sure but, but it, it still works who had that great duality he wrote the best songs about love and hate and in between like on this, this record is full of light and dark yeah. yes yes well, for uh, a lot about himself I, I totally agree. And uh, now we get, this is, to me, this is the most mainstream sounding song on the record. Uh, there She Goes Again. Is, uh, after yes. when they got There She Goes Again. But the lyrics are, aren't that mainstream. Because they're no. sort of, I, no, I no. think they're about a woman like falling into prostitution. 
Is that the vibe you're getting? There she goes again. She's out on the streets again. She's down on her knees, my friend. But you know, she'll never ask you please again. So it's well, kind it's, of... Yeah. Lou has some... He's reporting. He's reporting He's here. reporting, right. I should right, say right. that the uh, intro to this song, bum, 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 is lifted from Hitchhike yeah. by uh, Marvin Gaye. Yeah. It's a, it's a Mark, Marvin Gaye song. Oh, okay. The intro is also hit, was also lifted by the Rolling Stones for a Stones song on one of their first records. You hear it and you're like, oh, wait. And you think this, they stole it from the Stones, but not really. They, everybody stole it from Marvin Gaye. Oh, okay. one, one thing that did send the Velvets apart from a lot of the bands, especially the British bands, is they had a rule, no blues lick. Oh, right. okay, sure. okay. So sure. they could not be copying. There's no blues lick so much. Going on. This but, is one of the few things that it's not bluesy, but they took right. But I don't, I don't think that means they weren't listening to blues. No, no, no. Lyrics. They were fully informed with all that. But, but they were like that kept their records different from the Yardbirds and for so sure. much of the I, other. Totally. Yeah, one. yeah. That that, and that's a good thing to know because it's back there, but it's not explicitly played that way. Right. You know, it's it's in there. There's a. They're more, I've always said, especially on White Light, White Heat, White Light, White Heat is an R&B album. If you imagine those songs, especially like the song White Light, White Heat, imagine that being played by a soul group with uh, like Sam and Dave. You could pay up Sam and Dave playing White Light, White Heat and you'd be like, hell yes, that's, and the Velvets are, they're more of a, they're more of an R&B soul band than they were any sort of bluesy and there's a big difference there oh yeah no they they all love that Lou loved the doo-wop he said he, he, his choice would be to be James Brown's rhythm player that's what he wanted to be there right. you go yeah, sure that, for, so. for, that's it exactly but that, that informed them and that really made those songs drive it gets drives with this song run 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 wait yep. for the man right. yep. chugging song yep um and right, yeah, so, so yeah, she, so there the, she goes again. Yeah, the, she's, um, the streets have hardened her, and she's and she's not going to take this guy's shit anymore. So it's kind of like she's independent. But then it takes kind of a dark turn where he says, "Now, now take a look. There's no tears in her eyes. She won't take it from just any guy. What can you do?" And then he said, "You see her walking down the street. Look, look at all your friends she's going to meet. You better hit her. You better hit her. You got to keep her in line. What oh, the fuck, Lou? 19, <laughs> 1965. Yeah, that's yeah. 1965. <laughs> Um, That's funny. All right, so we get into another uh, Nico song. I'll I'll be your mirror, and this is beautiful. This is the yeah. most to me. This is the most beautiful this song is, on yeah, this record. Is. This is the most genuinely sweet. There's the earnest. Actual... It's very sweetly earnest, but still, it has that little ominous sheen on it. Though, of course, right? it does. Of course, it oh, does. Yeah. Right? Because <laughs> it has to. Because it's the Velvets. Yeah. Uh, I'll be your mirror. Reflect what you Because maybe are. it's somebody that's looked at someone a little bit too much and a little bit too long, and they're. Um, I'll be your mirror, baby. Right. I'm not obsessed with yeah. you, really. Because I see you, but but I, I think uh, I feel like the last verse references uh, Lou and and perhaps like himself. He's talking about like the, that there's maybe a sweet soul hidden behind his mask when he says. When you think the night has seen your mind, that inside you're twisted and unkind. I mean, come on, twisted and unkind. I'm sure that could be, people have thought about that of Lou. 
Please put let down me stand your hands. to let me stand to show that you are blind. Please put down your hands. Yeah, because I see you. Yeah. I'll be your mirror. So maybe that's sort of him being sort of self. Uh, yes. Yeah. Preferential. Yeah, saying that he put obviously he was a guy that put up a a wall, a wall For of sure indifference and a wall of. Aloofness, but no one, no one that could write cutting, songs the extremely way. cutting. Oh my god! But, but no one could who write songs the way he did couldn't can't have feelings somewhere. Oh, for though, sure. Right? Oh, there's yeah. no way. I think that's probably why he did it. I think that's why so much. There's so much extremes in because he loved so much. I think Lou really felt so much uh, caring and emotion about the things that when the bad things happened to him yeah. from his teenagehood on, right? He really, a lot, which a lot. I mean, his parents he had kind of a messed up problems, relationship. Yeah, with his parents, serious yeah. problems. He's a raw nerve. He's just a raw nerve. He's got to figure out some way to cover up that. Right. So there's that. a lot of duality in, in the lyrics. Yeah, for yeah. real. But yeah, he cared a lot. He really loved uh, more than anything else. And and so you know, having talked to Sterling Morrison, uh, knowing Sterling Morrison, you know uh, that the band was uh, frustrated with Nico for her the way she was singing this, the way she was singing. She they felt she was being too loud and ag- aggressive. And they wanted her to keep doing it, so they basically she started crying, right? Yes, she yes. was upset. She, she old, broke down and burst into Phil tears. Spe- Phil Spector theory. And so then we're gonna they, do it again. And then they let her do it one more time, and, and then it was more, perfect. Yeah, one more time, and that that <laughs> yeah. one worked. So they again, broke, you, you feel the emotion. Oh yeah, you through. do. Right. They broke poor Nico down. Well, in that way, you're right. Like uh, maybe like in The Shining with Shelley Duvall, it worked her. Oh know, yes, great that's right. That way, I mean, if there's a certain point, I got it. I can see what I need to do. <laughs> you love him, or I mean, you know, Kubrick was not, you know, his techniques were his techniques, and he oh, would yeah. do whatever it took right. to get the performance. My question about the lyrics are why is she covering up her face? Uh, please put down your hands. So, is there been like, is she afraid of getting hit? You know, yeah. yeah. So good questions. Uh, good questions. It's not a simple love song, but it's, it's no. not right. Yeah, even <laughs> on the surface it is, right. but always it sounds it's always right. something yeah. underneath. And then we get to the the Black Angels Death Song, uh, and and Lewis he has said about the lyrics that the idea was just to string words together for the sheer fun of their sound, not any particular meaning. But this is a but d- there but is so stuff in there. Remember, there was uh, Burroughs was putting the cut words together. Right, and, right, and, right. Uh, yeah. A lot of the Dylan albums had the cut kind of poetry. Yeah, sure. Yeah. That. So I think a combination of all these things, but there's some touches here, maybe Epiphany's Terror. Right. And is there some, some like a communist, like sort of vaguely anti communist things in there in the, in the first Who part he's talking about? Right. Who knows? <laughs> Black Angel's Death Song. Sorry, I'm too many drinks. I'm yeah, we're doing Black Angel. <laughs> but uh, an amazing. Amazing, uh, again, total, what a simple arrangement. Think about that. You're sitting there with your $3,000 studio. And how are we going to make this a song for the ages? Oh, don't die. Oh, the viola's going, and it's doing the uh, almost out of tune. That's the thing. There's a lot of this. You've mentioned this. Wobbles, slides, not quite in tune. That make it. That make it. If you had gotten a musician and written out what you wanted them to play and perfectly tuned their instruments, it wouldn't be good. It wouldn't no work. Way. No way. Right. And uh, according to Kale, now Sterling Morrison refused to play bass on this song because he disliked it that he had to play it. Oh, and Venus and Thursday also made him play. So Kale overdubbed the bass line uh, while Morrison just played uh, guitar on this one. Because I guess Sterling Morrison really hated playing bass. Well, I think Sterling probably realized that if they put you on bass once, yeah, like they there. might do it again. Like yeah. when, uh, uh, um, what's his name, George from uh, Seinfeld? What's his name, the actor? 
Um, oh yeah. Uh, they said he said uh, they wrote it. There was an episode where he he wasn't in the episode. Jason Alexander. Jason yeah. Alexander, and he he came back and he said, "If you write me out of another episode, write me out of the rest of them." Right. And they yeah. were like, they were like, <laughs> "Okay, we won't do that again." So. Right. Uh, you know, Smile. Sterling knew if they put me, I could end up playing bass. Yeah, uh, and then no one wants to be a bass player. Because, you know, <laughs> right. Well, Ron Ashton from the Stooges was the original Stooges guitar player, and he ended up in the Raw Power Band. He's the bass player, and so James is the guitar player. It's the worst. <laughs> you just, you, it's not a demotion, but most bass players want to be bass players, and most guitar players want to be guitar players. Yeah. All right, so we get to the final song on this record. And European Sun is uh, the this first song on the acetate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and this is, but this is also the song is like a precursor to their next record. I feel right because this yeah. has got the feel More noise, right? Yeah, yeah. Because basically, all the lyrics, it's got these lyrics, but they're just in the first minute of the song, right. and then the rest six minutes of the song are just this frantic noise. It sounds like you're at the international noise conference. It does. <laughs> <laughs> they, and they, they get more time than the actual set at an INC thing, right? So yeah, they, yeah, yeah, a little bit. Um, but yeah, the precursor to noise music. And this song, also I read that it inspired Can, the German experimental uh-huh. rock band Can. That makes sense. Its influence can especially be heard in, uh, in, they have a song called Father Cannot Yell. Oh, and, yeah. And they Mon- said, uh, Monster, Monster Room. Room. Oh, very yeah, good, yeah, Barry. Yeah. And uh, in which uh, Holger uh, Suke plays a similar bass line. That is yeah, in the can this definitely song. heard the Velvets and were like, "We got there's something here." If you're, that we imagine can. you're in a band and you're influencing Can, not like a band that's influenced by Can, but you influence. Well, that's them. the <laughs> other trill. That's the other band, the Eno thing. There's Velvets, Captain Beefheart, and Can. He says, and Fela. So you got if you want if you want a Brian Eno record, just play those four records simultaneously, and you get a, a, the general idea where Brian Eno's coming from. You killed your European son. You spit on those under 21. But now your blue car is gone. You better say your so blue long. Your car gone. <laughs> you better say so long. Hey, bye, bye, bye. Uh, Delmore Schwartz taught Reed at Syracuse University. And uh, could you imagine being Lou's <laughs> professor? <laughs> well, we know somebody that went to Syracuse with Lou. And she saw him, uh, our friend, art professor Peggy Nolan. And she's an amazing photographer. And she said she was in a bookstore in New York and... I saw Lou in there, and she was like, uh, you know, we took classes together at Syracuse. So she said, walked up and said, you know, hey, Lou, it's Peggy. We were in uh, class together. And he just like, he just looked at her, and it was like, okay, I guess this is not going to happen. And she just walked off. (laughs) You're not going to have a moment. (laughs) No. Remember what I said about Dylan? People come up to him in the street, and they ask him, like, yo, people come and talk to you. What's that like? And he goes dead time so you know Lou the same thing hey Lou hey Lou people go you hear those shows the live shows especially from the 70s Lou Lou and you're like he must have loved that uh, oh yeah that's now, Mike, of almost frat boy element people let, showing up let me ask you did your version of the record you got did you have the original peel off cover that you yeah. could peel it you did and I stuck it on my wall I took that off I put it on my wall I had awesome. some Warhol on my wall that's amazing at home yeah it's crazy Believe it or not, those are pretty viable, the ones that hasn't peeled. Oh, I can well, imagine. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's funny to think about I found about this that. in my son's bedroom. Man, Mike, this was great having you as a guest, mainly because you're older than me and Barry. Usually everyone's younger than us, so I'm really... Uh, that worked out. Yeah, that it's nice out. to have someone older. Yeah, but, plus um, Mike, Mike knows his shit, so... You really do, and uh, so this, yeah... 
record's pretty good, right? It's a pretty good record. It's held up, it's held up very well. And I like this, this last funny idea is that think about during all this time, we have one of the most literate, interesting writers in rock. Right. Yes. Well, the very brainy guitar player who specializes in medieval literature thinks rock and roll lyrics are meaningless. Yes, right, just right. Jabber right. like monkeys. Yes. He didn't want to hear about it, didn't care anything about it. Right. Because I asked him, Black Angels just song lyrics, I don't know. He do not know, right. But it's that really? attention. Yeah, he had no, no idea. idea. No, he, again, he didn't care. But he really that, didn't. He happened to know Gypsy Death and you, but I'm just saying. This <laughs> band, the fact that they were all intellectuals, but that tension between them. The tension them, was the there in their yeah. own worlds, and for a while it adhered yeah, right, before yeah. it blew apart. Before, it, it would have to blow yeah, apart. This is right. a band that couldn't be together for no, 20 years. No, no, there's no way, right? No, yeah, these five no on way. this one, the next one, then the four. Yeah, and then, and then yeah. three, and then basically. Because you, you know. Yeah, Lou Reed can't be in a band <laughs> when you no, think about it, right? No, no. Just for a small little bit. Right. Yeah, but yeah. This is probably the great example of the band album being the sum of the parts greater than the. Right, which those are yeah, yeah. usually. The, those are the best. The yeah. solo ones, yeah. never as good as the band. The, the, yeah, well, if, I, I don't Some think, good yeah. powering spot in general. Beatles, solo albums, et cetera, on and on. Right, right. 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 Not the same when you have a great band like this when they get along. When they don't get along, then it's done. So this yeah. was an amazing moment in time when it they really were amazing. inventing this whole world, and they put it out. And that we're still talking about how many years later? Fifty-two. I mean, 52 and uh, it's still we're still talking about it. Still, uh, I sell it two to idiots and a and and, uh, and, uh, <laughs> and a guy who worked. For, it was a nine-one-one dispatcher for how many years, Mike? How many? Thirty-three. Thirty-three years. Nine-one year. Yeah. One dispatcher. We didn't get any of those stories, Rob. I promised we were going to get some nine-one-one uh, stories. Good, give us one good nine-one-one before we end. Uh, give us one good nine-one-one story, Mike. I remember when you told me about the guy called from a phone booth and said... I said Mike. I said Mike, Barry, not you. <laughs> I just reminded... said my arm's swelling up like a golf ball. My arm's swelling up like a... Somebody who'd done some bad drugs, and he called and he said my arm's swelling up like a ping pong. There's some... You got a lot of calls like that, I guess. There were a few. <laughs> Another guy about talking about the sparkling wires going up, you know, in the public pole and sparkling wires. What? The, the, the power pole, would uh, the transformer would go off. Oh, right. Lines are going to go, oh, yeah, sparkling wires are going off. You could tell, you know, there's been a lot of spark. You've got going a lot down. of drunken 911 Things calls, like that. Is what you're saying. Well, Stewart was pretty quiet. It's not like here. Oh, I this used to is do in Stewart? West you were oh, yeah. 911 in Stewart? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, gee, God I did, bless I did you. West Palm for a year. I did Palm Beach County for a year. I had to. That yeah, was terrible. Every day was yeah, terrible. Right, but right. Yeah, it's like saddest, Trump's ex-wife's calling yeah. you and stuff, right? I guess the one kind of Lou Reed talk <laughs> call I had was a, an elderly man. He says, oh, yes, my, my wife's not moving. She's not breathing. Whoops. And how long? Oh, it just, just happened now. I said, well, sir, we can put her on the floor and start to give her mouth to mouth. Well, what would be the point? <laughs> wow. That is very, That's right. what I that said to it. myself. I said, well, we can help her if you want. Well, what's the point? Wow. And I, you thought, know what? I thought, well, next time, just call like, you know, a half hour later. Yeah, yeah. just call wait right so away. I'm not part of you know, this. If that's your, if if that's that's your, your deal. Wow. All right, that was good. That'll that's, be the point. That's, that's, that's one a good one. short like story. <laughs> All right, so uh, next week, what do we got, Barry? Next week, we have Alex Chilton flies on Sherbert. With... And, and let me just put Danny 
You better show up, buddy. I was going to say, you know, I have in my notes, I have Danny you. Gonzalez of the Jacuzzi Boys, and I put, I feel like Danny is going to postpone it or something. <laughs> you need to be here next right, Wednesday. So maybe next week we will have Danny Gonzalez of the Jacuzzi oh, no. Boys talking. We're <laughs> no, going to find him. Wherever we'll you go are. Wherever he is, we'll do it there. We're going to hunt true. you down, and we're going to do Alex Chilton. That is next like week. Like flies on Sherbert with and Danny Gonzalez of Jacuzzi Boys. And uh, keep sending us uh, emails. We like, we've been getting constructive emails. Most of them, if, if, especially if there's some Something correcting Barry about something he said, send those for sure. Please send the correcting. Yeah, we're funny. We haven't gotten any of those. <laughs> no, the chap one. People said, oh, well, chap, he used the wrong Has word. Has multiple definitions. One of my definition <laughs> was All also right, well, correct. I agree to disagree on that one. Really? Um, you really? I don't know. All right, so don't forget our Patreon, patreon.com. Mr. Malaprop. Forward slash, yeah, I'm, uh, mispronouncing things is my, that's my thing. Don't take that. Uh, patreon.com. They can't take that away from me. slash TRGMH. Become a patron. We, we thank you, all our patrons. Our, our patrons. Our newest ones, Lane Clappy, Stephanie Poma Cook, and Mr. Ricky Pollo. Thank you thank so much. Thank you all very much. For being patrons. And if you'd like to be a sponsor of That Record Got Me High. Yeah, good luck to you. Hit us up. <laughs> you got a mattress company. You got a, some meals you want to deliver. Uh, the meal some delivery scam, service. like a scam you want to run. We'll right, help you, run. you know, something with Jim Baker involved. We're totally on board. We'll do like a five-minute commercial. All right, once again, irony-free commercial. For once you. again, this is that record got me high. That's Barry Stock. That's Rob Elba. Thank you again, Mike. We're out. <laughs> oh, that was good. So it's trying to think about like, when is this going to end. <laughs> Shields.